You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show recording live here from the Old City District in downtown Batuta. And today's a special day for myself and, uh, and Errol, of course. It marks the return of the prodigal son, the pride of the Channel Country, the great Rick Morton. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. You've been trying to get Rick on for a while, haven't we, Errol? For a couple of years. Yep, yep. Now it's uh, now we thought we were ready. Yep. You know? <laughs> I feel like that was my fault, probably. I don't know. No, oh, well, no, see, the well. thing is, Rick, you were um, one of the few writers from this part of the world who who found a job in a paper down in the Big Smoke. Whereas, um, you know, th- and, th- and that means a lot to uh, to our town because, you know, a- as you'd know, out here we are the most circulated newspaper in uh, Batuta, Baduri and surrounds. Uh, so to have one of our own go down there and, uh, you know, and write for... And succeed. Some of, <laughs> and succeed, of course. Well, you know, you've got Clancy and Clyde. They went down to uh, to Brisbane, got chewed up and spat out and had to come back and work for uh, Clancy Senior here at the Batuta. That's how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was lucky. I'm, you know, like all media dynasties, I was able to just take the job over when he died. So... Uh, <laughs> But like Rick, you have worked for a range of different publications down there. I, I will, I will uh, specify. Actually, Rick is from the Channel Country. He's written an amazing memoir uh, about growing up out that way, and we'll get into that in a bit. But, but you've also worked as a journalist. And uh, can you tell us some of the like you know modern media in the big smoke? Can you tell our listeners what a young kid has to do to to establish themselves as a writer down south? You have to ingratiate yourself with yep. everyone. Um, mm. I took up smoking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I found that quite useful, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah. Into all the it's evidence. very social smoking. Yeah. It is. I miss I, it. Yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't probably you know, say it's a good thing. Um, oh, man. But it was for you. It was for me. I mean, it helped my career enormously, and yeah. I, I recommend it to everyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you, I, mean, you have to, I mean, you have to do all the shit-kicking jobs right, yeah. to start off with. So, like, I started my cadetship. Going to every uh, you know ambulance siren, every police siren, every fatal car accident. Yep. I mean, hor- horrendous shit. Yeah. Um, which I thought I enjoyed at the time um, because it was like a thrill and a rush, and you get in the car, you listen to the scanner, and you just go, go, go. And they applauded you for it. And I think I ended up, you know, finding, you know, because I grew up out west, my newspaper editors were a lot like my dad. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to impress my dad. This Alpha is males. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I had to kind of bend myself to these institutions. And Mm. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good at fitting in wherever I need to be. Um, You learn that, I think. Yeah. Uh, And that's what I did. I became like a a chameleon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, wielded that as I I saw necessary. Can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you've written all kinds of stuff. You said, you know, you were on the beat. You were doing, uh, you were also doing human interest and, and, and that kind of writing. And you've kind of delved now into a bit more investigative you know, almost a columnist at times, but how did you, what led to the decision for you to write uh, your memoirs, A Hundred Years of Dirt, uh, which, which was a bestseller? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I feel weird saying that myself, so now you've taken the pressure off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean that book, 100 Years of Dirt, I needed, I knew I needed to write that from the age of eight yep. yeah. um, because it was such, I mean, anyone who's had any, you know, kind of contact with far outback Queensland in particular, I mean, the stories out there will blow your mind. Um, you know that. But, like, we moved after my parents divorced to, you know, a little country town called Boona outside Brisbane. And it was like another life. It was like it happened to someone else. And so I always knew that I wanted to write that story. 
and it was just a matter of time and, and when I might be able to do it because there was a, lot, a lot of dark stuff happened. So I had to like get that out of my system first. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't have written it any earlier than I did. Was there a feeling, you know, that you were, I guess, a sleeper cell of this life, you know, this, this life of poverty, this life of harsh kind of living, you know, the, you know, the outback kind of, um, n- the, not the romantic outback <laughs> no, that we hear no, Andrew Patterson talk no, about. Long way from Baz yeah. Luhrmann's. <laughs> okay. yeah. this, is, this is more wake in fright meets, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, meets um, you know, Strictly Ballroom. I mean, that's where the gay part comes in, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was, uh, yeah, fourth, fifth chapter. <laughs> yeah. So, but you were down, you know, you were down... Melbourne, Sydney, working as a journalist. Yeah, Canberra, Hobart. Yeah, you did the press gallery. Did you feel like a bit of an insider-outsider? Can you tell us mm. like how you were thinking leading into writing that book? Like, was there, a, I'm going to show these media pundits what I'm all about? It, it, it was exactly that. I mean, the, the book deal itself came about because Mark Latham called me an elitist. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was, and I was so mad about it. That and this is this is not edifying at all because I was so mad about it that I took to my weekend arts column in the Weekend Australian to, to write a rebuttal to prove to him that I was not a leader in the arts column. Yeah. <laughs> and as I was doing it, I was I knew I you know I hated myself so much for writing it because I was so angry. Um, so I'm like this fuckwit doesn't know where I've come from. Yeah. yeah. But I was also like I almost didn't send it because I'm like I can't. Like, this is embarrassing. I'm writing this in the fucking art section. Um but I did and then the publisher saw it. But you know, I was a kind of a sleeper cell in the lead up to that because I, you know, I didn't really I was like the Manchurian candidate. Like I was, you know, the secret words were said when I was at university and I realized that you know, people live different lives. Yeah. And I never I didn't know I was poor or, you know, lower class or any of these things growing up because my mum protected us quite well. And then, you know, spending enough time at the Australian newspaper where I was for seven years, really good colleagues, but even some of the, the great ones just couldn't get yeah. the you know, the GP co payment was a big turning point for yeah. me when yeah. they were like they're like, Oh, it's just fucking seven bucks. Yeah. Who cares? And I'm like, Well, actually <laughs> I'm like, I've got when, some things to say about that. Yeah, when you're living on 40 bucks a day. It's yeah. It makes all the difference. Yeah. And I was trying to explain to people about my mum who, you know, not that I think there's any distinction between deserving poor or undeserving poor, but I was trying to explain. I'm like, you know, she didn't even drink, smoke or gamble. So she had no yeah. fat to cut. And yeah. that seven bucks was the difference. And the response I got from one bloke was literally not, oh, my God, um, okay, I, I'm going to reassess. It was, I don't believe you. <laughs> Literally, just bull- people uh, cannot be that poor. Yeah, he's like, how is that possible in this country, yeah. in this age? I don't believe you. It's, it's like seeing the apple fall uh, yeah. from the tree when you're kind of Newton and going, nah, there's nothing there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you did write uh, and you have written about, and it was in your book as well that you know when you were, you know, when after the divorce had taken place and the family had to relocate and. I guess a lot of money stayed on the land mm. and, you know, there was a moment of public housing there and there was, you know, all, all those kind of things that people go to when they, when they you know, enter poverty overnight. One thing that you mentioned, you write about that kind of stuck with me was that how you didn't have the money for the specials. Yes, yes. Mm. Which, I, I, and I never got that concept until I was much older, but we couldn't, you know, I mean, I, and I feel like this now, I've yeah. achieved some security in my life. Mm. And I can buy. I'm buying toothpaste in bulk yeah. because I because I hate going to the shops to get it every time I run out. Yeah. And as a kid growing up, my mum couldn't take advantage of two for one specials. Yeah. She couldn't buy fucking bog roll. Yeah. Um, in bulk, um, yeah. which is where you get the real savings. Yeah. Because yeah. You, there wasn't an extra dollar. You just didn't have that. You know that seven dollars yeah. to 
to save. No, not yeah. at all. And and poor people, there are studies on, um, done on this. Poor people spend more money on everyday items yeah. because of that effect mm. than people who have even a moderate amount of money. So mm. it's not even a, a rich versus poor thing. It's it's a very poor versus everyone else thing. And the, and and the, and you know, there's a whole other conversations about the standard of produce and and you know what what is accessible to people. You know, in low socioeconomic areas, they don't have they certainly don't have the the gorgeous delis with all the fruit lined up out front. No. In fact, you see the current affair do a few stories on that. You know, here are the yeah. woolies with the worst potatoes. Yeah. Um, but it's a whole thing, and there's like food deserts in in Tasmania, where like in the northwest. People on, uh, you know, Centrelink can't afford fresh produce and don't get all these nutrients in their diet. And plus you've got the cultural aspect of poverty, which people often overlook, which is that in my very white bread Mm. home and, like, you know, mum's suburban Ipswich girl, you know, never travelled except to Japan when she was 19, didn't like different foods. And so all we had was just, like, frozen shit. And not blaming her because she was trying to fucking put food on the table. But, you know, chops. Yeah. Um, little chicken schnitzels, veal schnitzels, yeah. um, whatever was cheapest cut, mm. and yeah. then almost no fresh stuff. Yeah. And so I didn't learn for donkey's years how to even cook something basic. Mm. And then you ended up on the Gold Coast with, uh, <laughs> with at university. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, tell us about some of those learning uh, curves. Yeah. Like, well, I, well, I love hearing you talk about the the medium rest. There is, uh, <laughs> there's uh, there's two types of people who go to Bond. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the scholarly kids, the scholarship kids, and everyone and else, and the kids, and the Saudi princess. Yes, yes. Which I thought, I thought, so I, someone had forewarned me that like, oh, you'll probably meet a prince or two, and I'm like, that's clearly a uh, mythology. Uh, and then I ended up with living with a, a billionaire heiress to a Greek shipping company, uh, yeah. who knew who knew the Anassis family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was, I mean, I would have had this culture shock at any university in Australia, particularly if I'd gone to University of Queensland where I got accepted to do my degree but then got the scholarship to Bond. Yeah, yeah. And I went to Bond because it came with the cadetship. Yeah. But then I get there and they only take a few scholarly kids every year. That was with the Bulletin. Yes, the Gold Coast Bulletin. Yeah, right. And they only take a few scholarly kids every year. And I remember, I mean, people were just insanely wealthy, yeah. like insanely wealthy. Yeah. Like, And they, it's one of the few places in the world, apart from, you know, all the private schools in Sydney and Brisbane where the students drive nicer cars than yeah. the teachers. And there were, you know... I mean, I, w- I became friends with the the son of the former leader of the Seychelles, who was overthrown in a coup. Uh, <laughs> really good friends, Alexander Mancham, lovely man. Uh, Virginia Papadakis, the heiress to the Greek shipping company. She, well, in, during the time that I knew her, she went, had to go to Japan to launch a ship that was um, named after her. Um, so she was studying Japanese for the business, the family yeah. business, as you know, but doing not much else. <laughs> On the Gold Coast. <laughs> On the Gold Coast. At a, such at a, a mad u- life, wouldn't it? it? It was so strange. And so, like, I went from literally zero yeah. to 100. 150 kilometres an hour in terms of my uh, acknowledgement of what other lives are like. Yeah. Well, we mentioned it before, the medium rare steak. That's, oh, yeah. you, you, you took that back home to uh, to your hometown yeah. and uh, everyone called you a show pony. Yes, <laughs> I, yes I'm kind of like um, the people, like the Venetians who invented double-entry bookkeeping or something. Like I brought this new discovery that would change the world back to the Morton family, which was I took my sister and my mum out to lunch. I wasn't even uh, earning good money at this point. I was poor as fuck. And I took them out to the pub lunch and I ordered my steak medium rare, which is the first time in Morton family history that that has ever been done, yeah. <laughs> ever. And, my, and I'm not like I, we kick, we used to cook our steak darker than like the depth of space. Well, yeah. don't um, want to looking back at you. No, <laughs> don't want to kick in the guts. Uh, and I ordered it at this pub, not even a nice pub. And my sister just looks at me and goes, mm, "La di da, rich boy." <laughs> and I was like, 
You, you know it's free, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is an option. You can choose anywhere you go. This is one of the few things when we talk about an egalitarian Australia that is true. It's just given to you. It's given to you. You just have to ask. <laughs> and, I, you know, I know we joke about it, but it underscores a, po- in a more important point. You have to know about it to ask for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know... Uh, look, I mean, obviously we used to butcher our own cattle growing up and and then ruin it. <laughs> just, just, like, yeah. just like fucking spray paint it with Tom charcoal. Tom sauce. Yep. Ooh, yeah, yeah Worcestie. Yeah. Bit of Worcestie. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and the beast too that you cut off and then your butcher aren't exactly, you know. Oh. A, a prize bull. An Angus. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a 18-year-old it's a <laughs> spay cow, you know. <laughs> In fact, you're doing the cow a favour. Yeah. <laughs> you open it up and it's already jerky. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my brother used to play games. We'd cut the bladder out and just kick it around like a soccer ball. Yeah. And whoever got piss on them first lost. Uh, it was always me somehow. <laughs> water bomb fights. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just a big old water balloon. Tell us about the transition into becoming... Uh, I mean, obviously, we, we've heard about you becoming a journalist and, and, and that all came through the cadetship with Bond, mm. uh, which was a decision. Uh, and, and that just goes to show, like, you know, University of Queensland, where you were accepted, you know, that could have been put on Hex and that could have been... Yep. But you think about Hex, you know? Yes. A lot of people don't think about Hex, but <laughs> no, when you're coming no. from, you know, where you were coming from, people think about Hex. Do I really want that hanging over my head for the I, rest honestly, of my life? And, and I didn't even know much about debt or how it worked because mm. we just didn't get a chance to get into debt in my mm. family. We just didn't have money. Mm. But like the scholarship I got to Bond was not a full scholarship. And so it was still like 30 grand yeah. that I had to pay somehow. Yeah. And only the year that I got accepted, I accepted it yeah. before I knew that fee help had only just been introduced for private institutions. Right. So my first year at Bond was the first year that I could use fee help and I just whacked it all on fee oh. help, which comes with a 20% yeah. premium as well. On, really? So it's even worse than Hex, I think, in that sense. But yeah, and I just, but I, see, so this is the other thing. Like, I was so financially impoverished in terms of my understanding of that. Yeah. But I didn't even think about it. Yeah. Like, I was, so, I mean, I, I say this kind of as a joke, but also kind of seriously. I was so stupid in terms of my understanding of everything about the world back then that had I known what I know now, yeah. I don't think I would be here talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, I would have yeah. done something nice and normal like law yeah, yeah. and gone and got a job that you know paid me good money and mm. and it would have nothing else would have entered my but mind instead you've chosen a but, career yeah. where you live in and out of yeah. poverty for I, the rest of your life I, 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 I Cheryl Sandberg's precarity I just I just lent in <laughs> and, and then obviously yeah, you get cadetship with the board and then you were in the door and then you were down south when you wrote that book uh, 100 Years of Dirt how did it feel to then become an author you've been a journalist that's a really good question because I still feel weird mm. calling myself an order, uh, author, order, uh, whatever that is, um, an auteur. Uh, <laughs> and I'd, so I'd never been to a writer's festival, even though I was interested in reading and writing. Um, I'd never been because I didn't feel like I had permission to, to be there. Mm. And so the first time I ever went to one was as an author. You weren't wearing a shawl and had <laughs> grey hair. <laughs> With like my, my resin jewellery. <laughs> and a dinosaur design. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And I look saying, well, back in the 1960s, this is what we did. Um, I love them. I love them all. Um, but, you know, they were, you know, and they came to writers' festivals to hear me talk. And I, I remember saying to my mum, oh, I've got a writers' festival. And she's like, people are coming to listen to you talk. And I said, yes. And she said, why? <laughs> and I, you know, honestly, and it's not like a, because no one in my family had ever done a soft job before where you didn't have to use yeah. your hands or do something vaguely physical. Like my mum's a teacher's aide and it's like up and down, up and down. Mm. And it's like properly, it's a job. <laughs> and I'm not... I don't want to be one of these guys who's become someone in the arts who doesn't think it's real work because yeah. it is, but I don't I don't feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. Like I feel like 
uh, a trader, basically. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, it wasn't until I had that first book published that I dared to put author or even writer mm. in any of my online profiles. Yeah. And I still feel like a bit of a jerk for doing yeah. it. It's weird. It's strange. But, do you, I mean, you, you, the writers are working when you see them on these junkets too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Um, Mate, pe- Public speaking's terrifying for anyone, let alone someone who's just just been thrown into this <laughs> whirlpool. Well, uh, particularly because I was doing the first round of publicity while I was still working at The Australian. Yeah. And then so if you picture it, I'm at every writer's festival and people love this book. And then every question at the end is always like, why do you work at The Australian? <laughs> yeah. And like at this point, I mean, this is part of the reason why I think I blew up my job at The Australian later on at a UTS thing. But like I'd been limbering up for a year telling people the kind of mechanics in my head about how I got by there and yeah. why I was still there. But every time, every month I was going, should I still be there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was just very strange. And that, that's right. Yeah. You, um, you were... I detonated. Were you stitched up? Well, no, no. People think I was. And I made a joke. So I got invited to do this journalism talk yeah. at UTS in um, just in May 2019. And I'd just come back from... I'd been diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I'd gone on the election campaign following Scotty Morrison around for a week or eight days, like every fucking city you can imagine. Should I be swearing? Is that okay? Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> fuck. Sure. Yeah. yeah fuck. <laughs> I thought that would be okay. Fucking yeah, <laughs> And then I'd gone, you know, I got back and I drove back to Canberra um, from Sydney, had a night in my own bed, drove back to Sydney Writers Festival, back to Canberra and then back again for this UTS gig. And so I'm fucking shattered. Yeah. And then... The kids, it's in the middle of an election campaign and these journalism kids just ask me point blank. They're like, do you think the Australian's coverage has been biased in this election campaign? And there's like a phone on a tripod directly in front of me. <laughs> and I see it and I know that, you know, this might get out. But and I just, you've I'm just like, been I, on the trail. I've just yeah. been on the trail and I'm like, do you know what? I can't lie. Yeah, I can't yeah. do that to these poor little innocent kids. <laughs> I'm moulding minds here. <laughs> so I went for it. Yeah. So what was it like when you came into work the next morning? Mate. Like you just kind of woke up and you're like, well... <laughs> just, well, well, <laughs> well. So, funnily enough, I was, so I was in Sydney. So I went into the. I was working at apartment house at the time for work, but I went into the Sydney head office the Thursday after. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Thursday, and then I went, went about my day. But I had to drive back to Canberra that afternoon, so I left at about five pm. And I just got back into the apartment house office. Maybe I left at like three because I got back in there at like six or something like that. And I got a call from the managing editor, who's a lovely woman, who was she's not the managing editor anymore, and she's just like, Rick. We need to talk. <laughs> this is serious. And it's like, you need to come back to Sydney immediately. I'm like, I just got back to Canberra. <laughs> and then I said, no. <laughs> I'm tuckered out. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm not. No. That would be dangerous for yeah. a start. Not that I made that ambit claim. I was mm. just like, I'm not doing it. So that started a week of really weird, tense discussions <laughs> that I were delayed until I went back to the Sydney office to have these Serious HR meetings, really? of which I cannot disclose yeah, much yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You said enough yeah. in that UTS well, seminar. <laughs> one of my colleagues said to me, he's, he's like, mate, because like, normally what they try to do is get you to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. And one of my colleagues said to me, he's like, mate, you're one of the rare employees who's done it the other way around. He's like, you said what you needed to say. He's like, sign whatever they want. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all on the public record. And then, obviously, we uh, get through that election. Mm. Um where Morrison wins. Yeah, didn't, uh, did anyone else see that coming? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. No, it was funny how he called him the Night Watchman. We yeah. called him the Night Watchman. For fucking months, and then the day that he won, someone in his team, it definitely wasn't him, fucking mm. emailed us 
like 2.30 in the morning and said, who's the fucking night watchman now? Fuck. Oh, <laughs> I bet I know who that was too. Oh, was it Andrew Carswell? Uh, well, no, it just came <laughs> off his office email. Oh, I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, there's no way The contents of this up. email, I never yeah. 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 yeah, it's, it's like eight words and then like, the footer's like 6,000 yeah. words. <laughs> That's our vaccination rollout agreement in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Open this email if you agree. <laughs> and then, um, so that all happens. And then you start delving into the NDIS, which we, hmm. I, I want to talk about a bit later. But in all of this, COVID-19 hits, bushfires, bushfires into COVID-19 and then you are stuck at home yeah. and you've got another book in you. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I've got to get it out. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, My Year of Living Vulnerably is your new book. Doing the Rounds looks like it's going to do as well as Dirt. I'm um, very happy with the response so yeah. far. Like yeah. It's, yeah, mm. it was, you know, a bit of great reviews. Well, great mm. reviews and people are buying it, which is mm. what I was terrified of. Because, yeah. you know, yeah. Not that I'm a singer or songwriter, but, you know, second album blues kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, That's what it sure. felt like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now this is the bounce back. And, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about this one because you've done your memoirs. Yeah. Um, we know your story up until... Well, Up yeah. until the... The glitter strip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very embarrassing calling them memoirs, isn't it? I yeah. always, you know, with the first book, I kept telling people it's a family memoir because yeah, like, yeah, I wanted yeah. to tell the story of the Morton family. And then people were like, oh, is this book now, is this a, a sequel? I'm like, <laughs> a sequel yeah. like three years after the first one? Like, what do you think I did? Like, what do you think I did in that time? I can tell you what I did. Nothing. I did nothing. No, I mean like Fair this. <laughs> well, I did do a few, lot. few meetings with HR. <laughs> And I, a, and, I, and I signed a contract, which means I can't write that book. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what they were worried about. They thought I was going to be writing a um, a tell-all, and I'm like, yeah. what the fuck would I tell? From like, I've got great stories yeah. Yeah. and great anecdotes. Newsflash, yeah, <laughs> news corps. I'm just I'm just waiting for them to cease being as a business, and then I can tell some stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, they'll move into action films, and then you can be like, well, when they were into news. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were into swift action in that time as well. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to write a book. I mean, I've always been interested in this kind of general idea of what it's like to live in the world and what makes life worth living. You know, the things philosophers have been talking about for a really, really long time. And I felt like weird thinking that I might stray into that territory. But I, because of the diagnosis of, of complex PTSD that I got in May 2019 after my first book, it, you know, it's defined by like an emotional abuse or a lack of love. And so I wanted to write a series of kind of like, you know, essays, I guess you would call them, which I feel weird calling them that as well, about the various ways in which you might, you know, reconsider love in the world. And not a romantic love, but like beauty and, and grace and forgiveness and care. Care. Yeah. And care in, you know, however it applies in your life, in your, you know, to yourself, like being kind to yourself. Like I had to do a lot of work on my brain, which is a bit of a dick, mm. um, to trying to get it yeah. to do the right thing by me. Yeah. But also, you know, forgiving that seven year old boy you know, my earlier version of myself who endured all of this horrific stuff after my brother had been burned. And so I just wanted to write like this kind of intersection of nerdy things about life, you know, science, philosophy, bit of personal essay, bit of reporting yeah. and just do some weird shit. <laughs> and, and, and it's kind of plays in a little bit to, you know, your, your, your previous book. Mm. You also 
I guess you've published another one in between those ones did, about yes. money, which is a, like a large essay, yes. I guess. Yes, it's of, an um, extended essay about you know what money does psychologically to you, yeah. whether you're poor or, or rich. I actually think that's my best writing, yeah. and I don't like my writing at all. So about money. Well, yeah, yes, yes, on, on money. On, on money. money. Yeah. yeah. On money. On <laughs> we'll edit that one out, Blake. <laughs> you can edit, you leave it in. I like the, I like the, the grittiness. <laughs> I'm about money. <laughs> <laughs> Like Hugh Grant stars in About Money. Do you have a fiver? Uh, <laughs> There's no black people in Notting yeah. Hill. Oh, uh, ter- <laughs> terribly awkward, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Notting Hill Carnival. I mean, people look like Hugh Grant at the Notting Hill Carnival. <laughs> See, this is why you should leave it all in. This is, this yeah, is the yeah. best stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, so they're all kind of thematically connected, these books. Like, the first one is really about poverty in class and love letter to my mum, who's a, just a, like, you know, someone called her a drought foal. Like, she's just this short, tiny woman who was born in a time of scarcity who just survive. Oh, someone else called her a thorn-off shotgun, which I think is more appropriate as well. <laughs> Steel magnolia. <Yeah. laughs> She's uh, diminutive but powerful as, yeah. as hell. And then, you know, money was a kind of like I'd been thinking about now that I'd come into some money as an adult, nothing that erases the structural circumstances I'm in. Like if I could lose a job tomorrow and I'd be straight back to where I was. Mm-hmm. But it was enough that in the moment I felt you know, I time to kind of catch up on what I'd been doing with my money, yeah, which yeah. was not good but yeah. because I, I never had it. So I'm just yeah. like, I just don't treat it as a real thing. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, this book, Vulnerably, is much more about the kind of the inner stuff. Um, yeah. But it was the stuff I really wanted to write. Like, I love reading books like that. Yeah. And mostly, and I'm not saying I achieve this, but I read other books to underline good writing, Yeah. to, like, you know, find those amazing sentences that just pull you in. And so I was writing a book where I, I hoped I could do that. You spent COVID in uh, really kind of awful circumstances, I guess you could say, and <laughs> you just, you know, you were kind of coming down from from all your success as an author. Yes. There's always a crash. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then um, you, you've got this diagnosis and you're living with a mate, uh, you know, in the suburbs and then he's a COVID nurse. Yeah. So you... I lock in. <laughs> yeah, you really yeah. had a lockdown. Uh, yeah, because like his sister, my best mate, was pregnant at the time. Yeah. And so he's like, every time I get a COVID patient, I'm not seeing anyone for 14 days. He's like, I'm just taking it extra cautious. And I'm like, well, I guess I am too now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, I love him. Like, I adore him. And we had a really weird, intense four-month – he was like a brother to me, right, yeah. growing up. Um, he's a, bit, a little bit younger than me, not by much. And I've known him since he was 16. And we just had a very intense lock-in, and yeah. it was so strange. But it was also weird because, like, you had all these, you know, when he did have COVID patients, we couldn't hug each other. Yeah. And that was the one thing that I had that others who lived alone didn't. It was yeah. like, yeah, you can get the hugs still. I fucking love hugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then couldn't, and yeah. it was just, like, so strange. And also, like, nurses can party. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never met people yeah. more willing to wreck their bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and can back up. I, they yeah. absolutely back up. And just imagine being hungover at work as a nurse. Right? I mean, just on just on your on feet it. for seventeen hours, yeah. just walking around. And particularly when you have to wear all that equipment now, having to lift things and, and turn people over in their ICU yeah. beds. Yeah. Like he was in ICU, and I'm so I'm I didn't write a single word for yeah. four months. I yeah. had this book deal yeah. that I was meant to deliver in March last year, yeah. and I didn't write a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's your party. That, yeah. just, that just reminds me of the. Um, <laughs> 
of the nurses in Alice Springs are probably listening to this, but they yeah. took us out after the Turf Club last week. Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association had a great time. Went out with the nurses, and I think they really uh, they left us shell shocked. There, were, there was a lot of Shania. I know. Yeah. 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 We got out of there as quick as we could on that little Qantas link. Those planes have never flown so fast. Yeah. Uh, uh, a bit of fun. He's praying, but, yeah. praying for a tailwind. Uh, yeah. You lost touch, and that's an interesting thing you write about, particularly mm. in an era where we're talking about boundaries. Right. You know, um, you've got to t- you tackled the idea of touch and how important it is for people. Well, it's it's the first thing that you sense um, when yeah. you're in the womb, and yeah. it's you know I didn't know this until I started researching it, but I, you know it always appealed to me as a, as a notion because I thought you know that was the thing I think that sent me mad in my twenties that mm. I had like shut everyone out and mm. refused to touch even my best friends, mm. and I became like this kind of. I don't know, per, like zombie who wasn't allowed to be near people, self-inflicted. Mm. Um, and then I started doing all this research about the Romanian orphanages. You know, che, um, Nicolae Ceausescu, the dictator, made all these women have all these babies for the country but then made them work. So they had to put the babies into institutions. And the severe lack of touch mm. in those environments didn't just have, like, mental effects. It had physical effects. Like, they were shorter. Yeah. They didn't grow. They had gastrointestinal Problems. And they were fed and they were... They were fed a nutritionally balanced diet. So yeah. it wasn't something you could attribute to um, yeah. food or, or other... The, nourishment. Yeah, yeah, nourishment. It was all down to this... They did, weren't cared for yeah. in a nurturing physical environment. Like, they were lucky to be held for about two minutes every day because there just weren't enough staff. Yeah. And, like, you know, the, the Harvard research... I mean, no one knew about this until, like, 1989, 1990, and the Harvard researchers went in there and they've been there ever since, basically, studying what happens. It's the world's longest-running experiment in real life on this kind of deprivation. And there were some babies, the, the head of the researchers said, research said, there were some babies that didn't smile, couldn't smile, and never did. Really? Like they never had? Never, never had. And they, they kind of, and the babies know this, and Jess Hill writes about this in her own book, See What You Made Me Do, about babies who are in domestic violence situations where they learn that it's, it's haunting because they don't cry. Yeah. They learn that if you make noise or whatnot, then other things start becoming stressful, so they just sit there. Yeah. And that's kind of what you do when you excise love in all its different forms and touch. And I'd done that in my 20s and it was maddening. Yeah. Maddening. Right. That kind of all plays into the stuff you're writing on the NDIS and and, and in, in, into the, the, you know, obviously there's the conversations of money that you've, you've written about and class you've written about, but also, um, you know, this idea of love and care and touch. Mm. and how that all plays into the end. Can you tell us what's going on there? It looks like there's something big happening. No one can really explain what's happening to the NDIS. John Mulaney would say something hinky's going on. Yeah. Um, So, look, I mean, the coalition has always been very nervy about the NDIS as as a ideological proposition because it's it's as it's legislated it's uncapped it's meant to provide whatever support people need based on their needs Mm -hmm. so if you need something you get it Um, they've never quite liked it but they've never really had a lot of power to change it because they need the agreement of all the states and territories Mm -hmm. until we get this one case which the ndis loses in a tribunal and then the federal court which um, a woman with really complex disabilities and chronic health problems who cannot um, achieve sexual release on her own Mm -hmm. wins a case to get a sex therapist or a sex worker Mm. once a month one person wins one case the NDIS blows its lid. Stuart Roberts, uh, Robert, who's the yeah. minister, evangelical Christian, I'm sure I don't need mm-hmm. to tell you boys that, mm-hmm. furious. 
furious and it becomes the perfect Trojan horse because he gets on radio and says prostitutes, 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 prostitutes a million times. And it's it's an easy sell for people in the community to be like, well, why are the taxpayers paying for this? But this woman, I mean, mean, it's human right when you think about it. And it wasn't, it's not like everyone was getting sex um, workers funded. But what he's done now has, you know, internally, and we've got leaked copies of this legislation, redrafted the entire rules for the NDIS that give him unilateral power to ban whatever he wants. He's no longer the minister, but it gives the federal government minister, the Commonwealth minister, they can write a rule which only has to get through the Senate to completely change the, you know, what the scheme will will not do. And the states and territories who fund half of it have no say. If this passes the parliament, that's the future. All right. So this hasn't passed yet. No. So this is what they want to do. So do you reckon that uh, cabinet reshuffle was probably a good thing for the NDIS. Uh, it's the best hope they've got. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously I talked to a lot of disability advocates and Linda Reynolds, so Linda Reynolds is an interesting character in and of herself. Mm. She's a bit of a tough nut, mm. but obviously has um, a reputation to rehabilitate after her handling of um, the Brittany Higgins yeah. Um, yeah. alleged rape. And I know for a fact that she's already been in touch with key disability advocates. Mm-hmm. And I know that this would be an easy win for her to be mm. like, Do you know what? I wasn't the minister when this stuff happened. Yeah. Because frankly, whatever your views on the NDIS, and there is a strong view that in elements it does need to be reformed, yeah. and I think that's true, but not the way they're doing it. Because yeah. what they're doing, they're talking about consistency, right? Because some people have been getting really big plans and some people get almost nothing with the yeah. same similar circumstances. But I got a leaked memo from them yesterday, and it literally says this will prevent people with, you know, uh, an ability to advocate for themselves, more educated people from achieving these goals and it'll bring it down to what other people are getting. So they're not equalising for the people who are missing out. They're equalising to bring everyone else down to the people at the level who didn't get what they needed, Yeah, yeah. which is not the solution. No, nah, kind so, of goes against the whole idea of it. Well, it does. It literally, <laughs> if, if all of this stuff were to get through, mm. it wouldn't be the National Disability Insurance Scheme. It wouldn't be an insurance scheme. It would be a welfare scheme. Yeah. And that wasn't the point. So Linda Reynolds... You know, if I was her, mm. um, and I'm sure she would love me for my gratuitous advice, but if I was her, I would say, <laughs> I wasn't the minister, I didn't approve these changes, I wanna, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to reset it, yeah. and we'll push it off beyond the election yeah. and deal with it. That, that might happen with the new def- uh, immigration minister too, with those kids yes. in Villa Wheeler. Yes. Like, she could just bring them home and you It's uh, one decision. Yeah, yeah, And, like, yeah. honestly, mm. like, I mean, my sister was a midwife in Billa Wheeler and yeah. that, that community loves that family, yeah. Yeah. like, loves them. And they are the only people currently in offshore detention. Yep. Yeah. Yep. In this country, it's, it and is insane. It's it cost costs so much. Nah, yeah, <laughs> and like it's cost so far, hundred and thirty million dollars. This whole thing. It's, and and what what really uh, gets me about this, like, is that like these people will stay in Australia, yeah, and so will all of the other asylum seekers. They are doing this too in the community. Who yeah. they cut their funding and they you know intermittently get Medicare access, but otherwise they don't. Yeah. They're staying here. Mm. They are citizens, for want of a better term, and we have absolutely fucked them. Yeah, yeah, Like, they are traumatised beyond belief. And, like, so even if you don't have a heart for all of these other things, socially, um, it makes perfect sense to make sure that we give them a welcome. Yeah, for sure, because what's going to happen is one of these girls might end up, you know, not becoming the golden child, uh, you know, asylum seeker that, you know, you, you, you only ever hear about. And everyone will be like, see, we told you so. Yes, you know what I mean? And, that, and then it just perpetuates the cycle. Yeah, it's not like, uh, you know, it has anything to do with these kids spending most of their infancy behind a, like, you know, on a sweltering tropical island. No. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, anyway. I mean that ironically, that's exactly what complex PTSD is. Yeah, like, yeah. you get these kind of traumas 
And it's the same as sexual assault. Uh, the, the output in terms of the body and how you react is the same. And so we are ensuring um, that this stuff bleeds into our welfare system, into our other service system. The state yeah. governments will pick up the tab. And it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like that with our own citizens either. I mean, we've got proof that we can change some of these things. I mean, the Productivity Commission did a re- big report about mental health. And they it was across government. And they said that a lot of the mental health problems are due to poverty. Yeah. Um, but the government thinks that dealing with mental health is you just give another you know, 10 million bucks to an awareness campaign through the Department of Health and then you're done. Talk about it heaps. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about oh, it. Amongst yourselves, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't come to us. It's like it's like your dad going, don't come running to me when you break a leg. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, mom. <laughs> well, you're doing some great stuff here, Rick. As I said before, the pride of the channel country. Thank you for joining us on the Batuta Advocate podcast. And uh, everyone, get out there and get this new book and get the other books if yeah. you haven't read them. Oh, look. And make sure you buy it from your independent bookseller. Mm-hmm. Independent booksellers. Yep. Are, don't buy it from Amazon. No, please, <laughs> please don't buy it from Amazon. Um, no, I mean, they're, they're the best. Thank you for not mentioning the um, the incident at the Batuta races when I was five. So. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, he's still wanted, man. He's marked, man. Uh, he, uh, what are you lost? What was a little Barney with some other kids? Yeah, I was getting bullied a bit, and I threw a beer bottle at him, uh, and then glassed him in, in, unintentionally, and then went and hid in a field of paddy melon. So. <laughs> Just um, knowing you were in so much trouble and all the parents were pissed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I went and hit in the field. No one yeah. came looking for me. <laughs> I mean, just imagine if that was your kid and you were shit-faced at the races in the middle of the Simpson Desert. It's like, how do I solve this problem? Yeah. like, I don't want to. I'm like, I just don't come running me with your problems. It's like, I'm going to take this fucking kid to Quilpie. <laughs> What the fuck am I going to do? I can tell you how they would have responded. There was this one guy before. Sorry, you need to go. No, no, no. no. Um, like, uh, I think it was after, um, it might have been a rodeo at the um, Aramanga pub, and my dad was trying to get the pram into the back of the car, and he's like, Deborah, it won't fold. And then she like looks at the pram, and I'm in it. And she's like, that's because your fucking son's in there, Rodney. <laughs> So I don't think that kid was getting medical attention. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Rick Morton, thank you for joining us. Thank you, boys. That was great.